Hi, everyone. This time on the No Acronyms Allowed podcast, we talk with Gianna Van Winkle, who serves as the Director of Emergency Management Programs for the Florida Association of Community Health Centers, and Marielle Mingo, who is a Project Manager with Clean Energy Group. The two help us dive deep into the world of resilient emergency power for Florida's community health centers. Plus, we preview a new report that we've released that explores emergency backup power capabilities, all in the name of ensuring access to health care for all. All right, guys. So uh, welcome to the podcast. And, you know, uh, just so you guys are aware, our podcast, No Acronyms Allowed, is a no-holds-bar public health dialogue. So we kind of talk about anything and everything that's out there in the universe that can be directly related to public health in some way, shape, or form. Uh, although we try to make it interesting, Stephen and I do. Um so I think what we're going to do is start off by introducing the two of you to our audience. And uh, I'm going to start with Gianna. We know Gianna very well. She's one of our team members, but I'm going to let Gianna tell tell the world what it is that she does, uh, title included, and how, she, uh, how her work impacts community health centers. And so I'll let Gianna get us started off this morning. Awesome. Thank you, Sheila and Stephen, for inviting us to be part of the podcast. I'm Gianna Van Winkle. I'm the Director of Emergency Management Programs for the Florida Association of Community Health Centers. Uh, and I have a unique role here at this PCA being 100% focused on emergency management. And I think that field in general, we've seen it grow and expand uh, due to recent events and also, you know, what we're looking at in the future in terms of um, the changes, uh, whether that be directly related to the climate or somehow connected to the patients that are served and impacted by various types of emergencies. Uh, we're definitely looking at emergency management through a very broad lens these days. So that gives me a, a unique opportunity to, to work with health centers in a focused way that supports them in identifying what are the hazards that might impact them and then addressing those through different mitigation and preparedness factors. This then translates into support during response and recovery. And, you know, today, we're looking at, you know, looking ahead at another hurricane season. Um, this is much of what the work revolves around, although we know emergencies can happen at any time. Um, hurricane season is a particular time in which we look at really important things related to hardening facilities, making sure that staff members are personally prepared. Them being prepared at home translates to them being more prepared to return to work and the health center being better positioned to operate during and after an emergency. And of course, a key part of, of hardening facilities and making sure that continuity of operations is, uh, is viable is ensuring that the health center has access to the supplies it needs and the utilities that it needs to operate. So um, that touches on a little bit of what we'll be talking about today, but we'll get more into it in just a moment. <laughs> So basically, if we boil that down to a few things, hurricanes pretty much make your day and uh, pay your paycheck, right? <laughs> Without yeah, them, you really I, I try happen. not to get <laughs> I try not to get too excited when it's hurricane <laughs> season. Uh, it gives me a chance to go let a little bit lighter on everything else. But um, the last couple years, it's been our busiest time. So yeah. <laughs> Days for all of you listening, that, that's when Gianna gets to do the heavy lifting for our organization during natural disasters uh, and actually man-made ones too. You know, those, there are a lot of power outages just uh, infrastructure wise too in the state. So it's going to be interesting, but let's introduce your partner in crime here today, Mariel Mango from Clean Energy Group. Now, a lot of our listeners are probably sitting there going, how does that even relate to, you know, public health? 
Um, but I think this is an interesting partnership uh, and we'll get to the nuts and bolts of that a little later. But Meryl, can you introduce yourself to our audience and your organization and what it is that you guys do? Sure. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm excited. It's been really uh, great working with the Florida Association of Community Health Centers team. So my name is Marielle Mango. I am a project director at Clean Energy Group. The mission of Clean Energy Group um, is to accelerate an equitable and inclusive transition to a resilient, sustainable, and clean energy future. And really what that boils down to is making sure that folks across the country, we are a nationwide organization, have access to the tools and resources they need to be able to develop um, clean energy projects in their own community. And that includes a lot of buckets. I have colleagues that focus much of their time on policy, um, some that focus a lot of their time on fossil fuel related infrastructure and how clean energy can support a transition, a just transition away from that. My efforts focus on our resilient power project, which really, uh, to get to your point, Sheila, focuses on the interconnection of how does energy security, resilient energy, clean energy intersect with other, um, you know, important community places? So public health, access to reliable backup power, ensuring continuity of operations in the event of a power outage, um, having access to a resource for clean energy when the grid is running normally. What are the economics benefits of that? What are the environmental benefits? And so it's been really especially as to Gianna's point, the past couple of years, Florida and elsewhere has, everyone has been touched by natural disaster or some sort of extreme weather, heat, extreme heat, extreme cold. Um, you saw what happened in Texas when they had that, that cold snap. And so we're working with more and more folks at kind of this intersection of how does energy, energy reliability, energy security intersect with public health. And the reality is it's Electricity is no is not a privilege; it's a right, and it's very intrinsic to continuing um, public health initiatives, making sure that the most vulnerable populations, like low income populations, unhoused populations, medically vulnerable, electricity dependent populations, have access to local, reliable, and trusted resources that have backup power. And how can resilient power or solar paired with battery storage? be supportive of that rather than jumping straight to maybe a fossil fuel based um, technology like diesel generators and things like that. So that's a lot of my work and much of the basis of our partnership being able to support FACHC and their efforts. So outside of, of this particular report, um, what other projects does uh, Clean Energy Group participate in? Sure, so we're involved in a wide variety. I would say one of our um, you know, biggest efforts is awareness building. So we do a lot of reports and webinars, blogs, oftentimes with community partners on different uh, clean energy efforts that are happening on the ground, but primarily related to people who are actually pursuing resilient power or solar paired with storage systems. So we focus a lot of resources on how can we show folks in different parts of the country how other people have done this, how other churches or um, food pantries or municip municipalities have incorporated clean energy into their emergency planning, their public health initiatives, as well as just improving their um, reliability. So that's a big piece. And then I would say we do a lot of partnerships similar to the partnership with uh, FACHC and like Connecticut. We're working with Connecticut Green Bank to help educate, um, inform, and support the development of solar and storage at affordable housing. Um, there's a great great economics and incentive programs through Connecticut. We work with partners in um, indigenous communities, BIPOC-led communities, uh, which I forgot this is an acronym, a free podcast. So uh, <laughs> I, know, I wasn't going to remind you of that, but you did it. <laughs> you were people of color. Um, so we work a lot with organizations that have been historically uh, marginalized and underserved in the clean energy movement to support their efforts on the ground to build clean energy. So that's kind of like an, how we... Uh, we really facilitate and support. We're not really an organization that comes in and says like, we'll do this here. It's more about working with the community organizations who are already doing awesome work. Um, and it's very similar to our efforts uh, with you all and Gianna and Florida of just supporting the great work that you're already doing and providing a level of expertise and insight into that clean energy process. So correct me if I'm wrong, it sounded like you guys do stuff um, outside of the US too. Is that 
is, is that what I heard when you said indigenous populations or no primarily um, focus on North America and we're primarily um, United States and territory. So Puerto Rico, when I point to indigenous populations, we've worked a lot with native nations, Navajo nation, um, indigenous populations in South Carolina, uh, in Southern Louisiana, um, yeah, yeah, a bunch of different types of, uh, of folks and, and people trying to do work in their community. Gotcha. Is there any uh, future scope to move move beyond the U.S. or is is it uh, you got enough work just with us? <laughs> I think we have enough work and enough limited funding to be able to continue scraping our way nationwide. Um, but you know, never say never. But for now, you know, a lot of our we have plenty of work to do in the U.S. and Puerto Rico and all that. So are individuals available to donate to your organization for to support your mission, or do you find that you get your funding through grants and, and other programs? So we always welcome um, donations. Those are fantastic. Uh, we are primarily foundation funded. Uh, Clean Energy Group receives some funding through some DOE or Department of Energy and, and federal initiatives, but the majority of our um, funding is, is foundation funding. So Gianna, talk, let's talk about this report. Um, and for our, our listeners, the report is uh, actually posted on the uh, uh, Florida Association of Community Health Centers website, and you'll see it above the fold. It's called Supporting Access to Healthcare, Resilient Emergency Power for Florida Community Health Centers. Now, let's talk about what was the catalyst behind doing gathering this information and compiling this report? So it was really uh, some synergy that sort of led to the point where we are now in that based on feedback from health centers, which really guides all of the work in, in, in my field and much of the work of the Florida Association of Community Health Centers, um, what we observed through different types of emergencies that occurred is that one of the main factors that limited health centers in terms of reopening was lack of emergency power sources. Another piece of this was, I think through the pandemic, we saw this increased focus on ensuring that specifically vaccines, but this applies to a number of different types of medications and um, you know, the typical vaccines at health center store, but the, the cold, maintaining this cold chain storage is another key factor uh, in health centers being prepared for different types of emergencies. And again, emergency power would typically come up in that conversation. Uh, you know, people who are well-meaning often want to, you know, just throw a, a solution at a problem, right? And, and we kind of heard folks saying, well, everyone needs generators, you know? And we wanted to start from a very informed place saying, well, does everyone need generators? Does everyone want generators? And first of all, let's find out who has what and where they are located. So that's kind of the original idea that we started with at the association. Around that time, I was approached by Direct Relief uh, in regards to their Power for Health initiative. Um, this is focused on resilient power. And so it's a little bit beyond um, the scope that we had originally came to, um, you know, arrived at, the place we arrived at just in, in getting that foundation of knowledge. But when I shared this goal with Direct Relief, we saw that both of us could really benefit from that information. So we set out to conduct a, a statewide assessment in terms of who has what, and what sort of was the perspective of health centers in terms of expanding their emergency power? 
and, and the capabilities associated with that in terms of continuity of operations. So that was our, our starting point and um, Direct Relief generously offered us a grant to conduct this assessment and engage a number of partners, including Clean Energy Group and Powered for Patients, which uh, informed the survey tool that we used to do the initial uh, data collection from health centers across the state. So Mariel, when you were approached, your organization was approached about this idea of gathering this, this data and finding out the capabilities of health centers in Florida. Um, what was you know the mindset at, C at Clean Energy Group, and and how did you propose moving forward as a partner uh, with this you know gathering of data and this report? Yeah, so we had been Clean Energy Group has worked um, has been a longtime partner with Direct Relief. We worked on quite a bit of projects in Puerto Rico following Hurricane Maria. So um, that partnership was already there and established, which is you know helpful. And I, I think really our support in this initiative was to work with Gianna and Direct Relief on when we're looking at a survey, how can we get an idea of what folks need? First off, do they have backup power or do they not? But if they don't, what would backup power support? And really finding out um, like vaccine storage for temperature regulated vaccines and medication is it was really um, a priority and folks wanted backup power, but just didn't have it. And so a lot of the questions that we supported the development of were around just what do you know about backup power? And the reality is a lot of folks, whether it's a homeowner or a critical facility uh, provider is Oh, diesel generators, right? Like that's what that's what a backup power source is. So understanding a little bit more about what health centers kind of gaps in their knowledge helped us on the CEG end of things um, be able to tailor a little bit of, okay, how do we actually build in awareness about how solar and storage can be part of your emergency plan? Um, and it doesn't need to be separate of, of, you know, a diesel generator, right? So that, that really helps set a baseline for us in terms of um, how can a solar and storage assessment or an educational support um, program meet people where they're at. So it, you touched upon the um, the solar uh, backup options. What are some of the other capabilities that you guys uh, educate um, you know your partners about or uh, potential organizations that are looking for something outside of that diesel generator option? So at Clean Energy Group, our focus is primarily solar paired with battery storage. Um, that's the, the economic option. That's the option that states are adopting incentives for. It's great for the environment um, and it's reliable, right? This is like a proven technology that's been used time and time again. So our focus is there on battery storage, usually battery storage paired with solar. And then also letting folks know what does it look like if you do want to incorporate a fossil fuel generator like natural gas or diesel? How does that extend the amount of backup power you have? How can that further support your facility? But really, a lot of folks don't realize that solar and battery storage has economic benefits just when the grid is operating regularly, right? Whereas if you have a diesel generator sitting in your warehouse, it's not doing anything for you unless there's an actual power outage event. So that's a lot of what we work on for building awareness is just letting folks know what's out there and how it can support their operations, both during a power outage emergency and regularly. So Janice, going back to the survey itself, it sounds like you got a lot of great input from the partners. They helped develop some of these questions and, and um, help you put this together. Let's talk about participation from the Florida Health Centers. So you you've put the survey together. You put some pretty <clears throat> pretty concrete uh, questions to gather the right data. So once that's done and you get that out, let's talk about the response and and how you felt that you know the health centers responded to the survey and 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 did you find out you needed to ask additional questions once you started getting the data in? Yes. Well, you know, we at the Florida Association of Community Health Centers ask a lot of our members in terms of giving us information, you know, help us help you type of initiatives. So 
understanding that this was a bit of a, a lift in terms of, you know, looking at the questions, some of them can get fairly technical. Um, I myself have learned so much through this process. I am by no means an expert or even that knowledgeable about what generators do or how they work. But, you know, through this process, we asked questions, again, twofold. One sort of like about the specs of the generator and the emergency power source, if there was one. If there was not one, we asked them to kind of think about if you had one, what are the needs associated with that, right? But then there was a whole nother portion of the, the questionnaire that really sought to gauge where they were in terms of what are the perceived barriers to expansion? Um, have they been able to identify any partners or funding? Because we know that health centers are always doing more with less, right? Um, and we don't have a dedicated person at the health center typically who's working on emergency management. Um, this is a responsibility that spans operations, facilities. And sometimes when we put a questionnaire out there, it has to go, one question might go through, you know, multiple people to get an answer. So we also designed the survey in such a way that if you don't know, it's okay to leave it blank. Just give us the information you have. And when we looked at the information, we were able to tease out a couple of really good and, and telling data points that are included in the report. But there were certainly some blanks um, and we, we invited every health center that participated in the initial survey to have a follow-up interview with us. And that's where we sort of were able to kind of dig a little bit deeper about the hows and whys in terms of which sites had emergency power and how that translated to their operations in terms of addressing the needs of the patients that they serve. So you touched upon um, barriers. I'm sorry, Mario, did you have something to add? Looks like I just wanted to jump in and say that we were, have worked with a lot of a clean energy group, a lot of um, partners and a lot of um, initiatives and the quality and volume of the data and responses to this survey that Gianna received, I think is a real indication of um, the confidence that health centers have and the, the support they look to for the Florida Association of Community Health Centers. I mean, the response rate was incredible and um, we, we work on a lot of these and it's, it's tough. So actually being able to know, do a needs assessment, on health centers and have that um, data to be able to jump a point off. It's just, it's a really big deal. And it was um, exciting for me to see and be able to work around, but really I, I think it's a, a testament to the Florida Association of Community Health Centers and, and the partnership and relationship they have with their service providers. Thank you. So let's dig into the barriers. Gianna, you had mentioned um, that you found out a lot about the barriers to health centers, whether it's barriers they have with their current systems that are in place or barriers to uh, obtaining uh, backup capabilities. So what are the, some of those barriers that you learned about? So we, in the, in the report, we kind of consolidated these into a few different areas, but I will tell you, the main one that was reported, which is very typical, comes down to cost, right? I think we we know that, you know, there's more investment of time and energy into these projects. Um, but the the what gets us there, right, is the support, um, whether that be, you know, grant funded or otherwise somehow worked into existing plans to, to make this happen, right? If we can get the funding, we'll find the time and energy, right? But I think all of those are, are reasonable considerations uh, when people look at, you know, when and whether to expand emergency power. We'll, we'll talk about expansion first, and then we'll talk about some of the existing sort of barriers. Um, you know, the installation cost and the maintenance cost, they can be significant. And I think, you know, this is backed up by the idea that, you know, sometimes we're we're basing 
these numbers in our head off of sometimes outdated information, um, our past experience with a particular facility or a particular job. And so it's really important that we, through this effort, and this is part of our ongoing work, is, is look to take some of the mystery out of what actually are the costs associated with different types of emergency power so that that can you know, be realistically addressed and explored fully. Of course, there are existing limitations that, that health center sites have to deal with. Some of them are the facility structure or the facility age, right? Um, we need to be aware that certain health center locations are in flood zones where they might not have a place to install the, the type of equipment that's needed to power the building. Um, with that said, also some health center sites are leased. So putting a long-term uh, emergency power backup source there might not be the best uh, option for those particular sites. So we kind of addressed those through some of the follow-up conversations, but you know, a place where we really saw that we could have an immediate impact is the limited staff knowledge and the capacity restraints. Uh, Marielle touched on, you know, Clean Energy Group really having this focus on awareness building. And I think that's where we were finding so much potential between us because again, you know, our, our scope is very wide. You know, we wanted to make sure that we included solar and storage systems as part of the conversation, knowing that that's new and there's plenty for us to sort of explore around incentives and other rationale. And it's it's a, just a generally less known option. So we wanted to make sure that we include that and we keep that at the forefront, but this is not to discourage or um, diminish the capabilities of other types, including you know, traditional backup systems. And what we're finding really in this initial phase is that we're looking at health centers approaching this through a hybrid, which makes a lot of sense and kind of eases folks into the idea, you know, more is more when it comes to backup power, right? So if we can have both in place at one site, it just adds resilience and it gives us those ongoing benefits that Marielle talked about in terms of energy savings. Um, you know, one thing I will mention uh, as it relates to traditional backup power, and again, builds the case for um, having this hybrid or more um, resilient focused approach, is that after Hurricane Ian, I heard just anecdotally from a number of health centers that their generator that they rely on um, did not function as expected. And this is... Um, this is typical. It's a piece of machinery, just like anything else. We we hope that works when we uh, go to use it, and sometimes it doesn't. So, you know, with that said, we're looking at this with a really open mind, and we want to open up this conversation so that people start where they are, and we can then factor in all of these very unique and, and individual perspectives and, and you know, facility conversations and cost conversations so that we can kind of address those barriers as they come up and hopefully bring them down so that people can really uh, fully explore all of the benefits and possibilities. So Mariel, um, can you touch upon the resources or tools that you use to do the education and outreach that Gianna and you had both mentioned that Clean Energy Group does. Now, do you go in and do webinars? You'd mentioned webinars as one. Do you have collateral materials that you send out? Do you go speak to them in person? What are some of the activities that you guys do to do that education um, and awareness? Sure, so a lot of our uh, focus is webinars, publications, easily digestible publications. So like one page case studies, um, short reports on uh, what is solar and storage? How can it be a supportive of your facility? A lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations. Folks are always welcome just to call us. 
Another opportunity that we have is um, a small grant program called the Technical Assistance Fund, which actually provides small grants to cover a solar and storage feasibility assessment at a critical facility that serves vulnerable populations. So um, this particular initiative uh, was really great because um, we offer this funding, but Direct Relief was so supportive in uh, a funding of the actual assessments and of, of deep diving into all of these options. But I find that the assessment is really seeing your own feasibility of how solar and storage can work in your facility is one of the most beneficial ways that a, a critical facility can actually like understand it, right? And so you see the placement, you see if there's any bare structural barriers like your roof or ownership. Um, you get to learn about setting expectations in terms of what can it actually provide, you know, right? We have folks that redundancy is key, like um, Gianna was saying. So understanding that solar and storage could provide eight hours of emergency backup. Sure, that provide that'll cover about 60%, 70, depending where you live in the country, of power outages. But in places like, you know, the, the Gulf Coast and in Florida, power outages go much longer. So understanding, oh, look at my assessment report. If I pair a diesel generator with it, I might get five days of resiliency. You know, these are all things to be able to actually see numbers. So I think that it's kind of a two-parter. It's first talking to folks with where they're at and understanding just the general, what is solar and storage? How does it work? Who's used it? Um, setting expectations, but then when possible, really actually giving folks insight into their own facility of how this can be helpful. And I think that was, um, especially in this partnership, um, really a, a an aha moment for a lot of people who did the site screening to be like, oh, wow, look at, look at how this works in my own facility. Um, and when I pair it with this, it looks like that. Here's the energy savings and having direct relief as a partner um, to, to support that process has just been unique, I think, and invaluable. So Gianna, after you got all of the the information back from the health centers, what was the most significant finding from this report? I think one of the things that stood out and, and really, again, points to the lead that we had was, was a good one, is that we found the vast majority of health centers had a desire to expand their emergency power. And I think, I think it was about 85%, about 85% did, but yet only about 20% had identified partners or funding to help them get there, right? And again, that's the place where we can really step in and as an association advocate for our health centers um, raise awareness with our, you know, national, federal, and, and state partners, as well as the locals, and start to think about this and, and share information in terms of the strategies that are working for health centers to, to actually take that step and expand their emergency power capabilities. One of these opportunities that Marielle referenced is the Power for Health initiative that Direct Relief launched in 2021. Um, they have dedicated efforts and funding to expanding resilient power systems uh, at health centers. And they've done quite a bit of work in Puerto Rico, California, Louisiana, and North Carolina. And you know they were looking for a partner to help them identify sites in Florida that could benefit from this. So we also used the survey results as a springboard for that, following up on the interviews and then really gauging who among those were interested in these resilient power systems. So again, it's adding solar and storage to an existing generator or creating that system where there is no backup power currently available. So um, through this effort, we're now looking at 15 sites around the state of Florida. They're now 
they've gone through this initial screening. So they were provided with that initial estimate of what a, the costs would be. They've looked at the building in terms of the space available for batteries and solar panels. And, you know, the goal of this is resiliency, right? So Direct Relief has set forth some parameters around a minimum number of hours for resiliency, as well as um, some cost parameters that ensure that the system um, will essentially pay for itself over time with the utility savings. Um, and that, that being said, you know, that also opens the door for health centers to look at, well, could we use this as a starting point and actually create a system that gives us more resiliency, more savings, and um, or you know, looking at doing this at other sites as well. So as we move forward with this, um, we know that you know direct relief cannot provide funding for every health center site across the across. Now we the wish, state. right? <laughs> we wish, and I'm sure they wish too. I mean, they're incredible, and you know, this initial group of health centers that is now moving into the design phase, and you know pending the findings, and there's a couple more steps that need to happen before grant funding is issued. But, you know, those that do work through this entire process, which, you know, just like anything these days is, is not necessarily a quick process, but we're going to see them through that. And, you know, those that do end up with these systems in place can really serve as a business case for others. Um, we dedicated part of the report to replicability right? And, and thinking about how other states can approach this, um, how other health centers who are not part of this initial group might want to start the process. And I will say, as it relates to Florida's community health centers, FAP is going to be that consistent partner in helping them identify their goals and resources to meet those goals. Um, Marielle talked about, you know, some of the technical assistance that's available. Um, we are going to approach, you know, others at the local, state, and, and national levels to, with this report and with the updated report that will include more uh, about, you know, these 15 health centers and their experience through this process to start that conversation because we have to draw the line from the idea that adding emergency power to these sites increases access for communities that would otherwise go without care um, during emergencies. And, you know, again, just to further the conversation around resilience and clean energy, there's just so many benefits to health centers being involved in this conversation early on. So, you know, we want to continue to lead with that in terms of, you know, we're fine to, to start from where we are in terms of having a lot to learn. But, you know, the more we talk about this and the more we create spaces for people to ask questions, the more we can find opportunities to work together towards this common goal. So both of you had touched upon, and Mary, I'll let, I'll let you finish your response in a second. Both of you touched upon um, climate change uh, and, and its impact on areas where you're educating people about other capabilities. Meryl, this is really a question for you because you brought up Texas and we all saw in the news what happened with Texas having the wind, um, you know, having the windmills and, and using that power system that it had failures during the snowstorm. What are some of the things that you think climate change wise could impact this battery backup capability? You know, in Florida, we have tornadoes, we have hurricanes, we have, you know, we, we run the gamut. Yeah. I mean, we've even had earthquakes and I, you know, I'm like, so we just get it all. Um, but what are some of those things that anyone interested in this type of capability would need to know? Like, what do you Sure. I think it's worth noting that in Texas, the, the major issue was that it's a, a centralized power grid that relies on uh, power plants, typically gas powered power plants. And what happens is if that infrastructure is not able to start in the when it's cold out, you're not going to have power. And that's that's really what happened. It was a reliance on 
single sources of energy for massive amounts of population. So when you have one failure, you have multiple. And if more critical facilities had been equipped with emergency backup power, they would have been able to deconnect from the grid and provide emergency resources, which is the point, right? So I think, A, it's setting expectations. A, solar and battery storage is not going to remain on a facility if that facility is gone because of a tornado, right? And there are certain folks where in the event of a power outage, even if they had access to um, reliable backup power, are still going to need like a hospital care or ambulatory care or emergency support. But there are a huge number of individuals who really just want to look to a community institution to receive their care. And those are medically vulnerable folks, people who are electricity dependent, people who receive their continued care from a community health center. I mean, these health centers support the most vulnerable populations, people who are underinsured, um, not insured, low income, multi-generational living. So we've heard time and time again from different research that in the event of a power outage, folks do not want to or are not able to travel to a hospital. They don't want to do it. Hospitals are required to have emergency backup power. And instead, they will wait for an, for an emergency event, either for their equipment to stop operating, for their uh, refrigeration to get so ineffective that their word, their insulin is no longer effective. So to have these health centers that are already pro providing a trusted service be able to have this backup power is important. And part of that setting expectations conversation is what can backup power provide? Uh, how long can it provide it? And it's not infallible, just like anything else. You know, if there's a flood and your battery's on the floor, a wet battery is not going to be very helpful. But how about understanding that you're in a floodplain? We elevate the battery. There's a lot of different ways to work around this. And I think that to Gianna's point, these questions get asked so much more about clean energy when really reliability issues have plagued fossil fuel generators for decades. I mean, the amount of folks that I work with at health centers and other critical facilities who say, I went to start my generator in the event of a power outage and it didn't work, it makes sense. You're not really using the generator that often. So how would you know, right? Some institutions do regular checkups, the vast majority don't. So when you have solar and storage and it's working for you all year long, you know that system's there and it automatically disconnects and provides that backup power. Um, and I think that's that's important and being able to just ensure this continuity or at least some sort of care for folks. I mean, this I think the survey, I forgot the exact percentage, but it showed the majority of health centers have temperature regulated vaccines and medications um, that they store, but the majority of them need to rely on an emergency management plan that involves moving those to different locations because they don't have backup power. And it's like, why are we putting that burden on critical service providers who could be doing work in the community um, to, to do to kind of figure out how to get this movement going when they could just provide that on be able to continue their own storage? So there's a lot of um. I think different facets of how emergency, you know, emergency power and clean energy can support public health and what it can and can't do. And then really focusing on that can section of where can we check boxes off here and emergency management continues to do the support for, for where it's not the most effective. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, we've all heard the, the news reports, especially in Florida, when you can't get diesel. And um, so if you're relying on that as your backup capability and you can't get the fuel to maintain it, where are you? Um, and to your point, I believe it's 83% of the, the health centers that um, store vaccines in their facilities and have to have some sort of game plan. What are we doing if this happens? Um, Gianna knows I'm married to a generator guy, so I hear about generator stuff all the time. I'm like, oh, um, but uh, to add on to that, you you guys had talked about, you know, um, possible next steps, what you're doing with this data. Let's uh, dig deep deeper into what that plan is, because um, Gianna, I think, mentioned doing follow up uh, information gathering. I think, Mariel, you talked about there's a possibility there might be some changes um, on the federal level, you know, whether it's going to be funding or it's going to be policy. Um, let's, let's dive into those. Let's start with what, what are the next steps? What additional information do you guys think you need to gather in this phase two? So we're starting off, uh, with, you know, outreach to partners leading with this report, and we're going to actually host two interactive webinars, 
one specifically for the health center audience here in Florida, so that we can both present the results and then gauge again their interest in continuing this conversation specifically for those that aren't already sort of on the move with the current direct relief project. Um, you know, I think that's going to be our guidepost for the future in terms of, you know, where this lands in terms of the priorities. Again, we're we're heading into a busy time of year now, but we have to lay the foundation for these conversations so that we can pick up, um, you know, when we have that very fleeting moment that things seem to be settling and, and kind of use that to, to take this uh, to the next level. Again, when we bring this information to that broader audience, including um, partners in public health, um, policymakers, um, those in the clean energy space, we're hoping that that will lead to identification of further opportunities where people want to, again, just explore what's possible. The health centers are already doing this work that is so impactful for these communities. You know, to go back to the, the conversation around climate impacts, you know, we're hearing that spoken about a lot these days in conjunction with health equity, right? We know that increasing number of disasters are going to have um, an exponential effect on those already vulnerable populations. We see that in the headlines um, after Hurricane Ian, the housing crisis, the food crisis. Um, this is being experienced, again, uh, regardless of the scale of the emergencies, right? We see it make the headlines after this major disaster, but this is happening all over the country every day. And health centers are addressing a lot of these needs just in their day-to-day -day operations. So, you know, we know that as those conversations happen, um, we need to be at the table. Uh, you know, these partners that want to invest in uh, initiatives that address climate impacts and health equity, they can certainly look to health centers to be doing that work. And so if we're equipping them with clean energy sources that in ensure that they can continue operations and meet those needs, it's a win, 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 win for everybody involved. So I think that's what we're seeing as sort of the short and the long-term goal is just highlighting all of those connections and then bringing those projects to fruition as as further cases to to build this momentum. And Mariel, where do where do you guys hope? Uh, last question, I promise. <laughs> where do you hope to um, move this partnership with the Florida Association of Community Health Centers and Direct Relief and in, in reference to the information that we've learned and and the potential information that we're about to gather? Uh, in the near future, where do you see this going, and and what are what is your organization's hopes for you know funding or policy change in in reference to uh, clean energy or clean uh, energy resilient backup capabilities? Yeah, so I mean we're excited. Clean Energy Group is excited to be able to continue supporting the Florida Association of Health Centers as much as we can, right? So I think we were really successful at disseminating the report, the webinars that we have coming up. Like uh, Gianna said, there's going to be one specific for health centers. CEG will be hosting one that's um, open to our, we have a huge network of everything from foundations to states to energy industry, because I do think this crosses um, into multiple different interests, right? There's a super health specific, but then there's also an emergency management, but then there's also real interest from like foundations and um, energy partners, energy leaders about how is energy supporting health and how can we be supportive of that? So I think awareness building, creating case studies of the projects that actually um, get developed. It's so helpful for a health center or any critical facility to see an example from their community or their state or their region, rather than sharing something from California to someone in Florida. That's a, it's a very different uh, area. And I think just to your point, there's a lot of opportunity for policy um, work. And so both that's within Florida, uh, which doesn't have super supportive battery storage, solar and storage 
um, policies, but also to touch on what Gianna said a little bit, there's precedence um, starting to build for FEMA and different sort of emergency management funds, mitigation funds, recovery funds to be supporting of building back better. So if there is an opportunity for um, a critical facility to be equipped with battery storage, especially one that supports public health. That should be something that FEMA is looking to as a way to not just recover, but recover better and prepare. It's an emergency preparedness tool. And I think we'll see more federal funding um, flowing to projects like this rather than being exceptions to the rule. And I think a lot of that's going to have to do with building awareness, showing that it's working, showing folks who are interested, showing programs like um, what the Florida Association of Community Health Centers is doing. And I think that's a big area of, of opportunity because more and more places are consistently recovering from natural disasters, building it back better and ensuring that you can provide more resources in the event of a power outage rather than just going through the same thing over and over again is the definition of advancement. And it's what the, the federal government and the state should be supporting. Great. Well, thank you both. Uh, this was fantastic information. I think a lot of individuals are going to be out there trying to start up some uh, <laughs> diesel-powered generators in the next few days just to make sure they're working. Um, and I wouldn't blame them. I wouldn't blame them. Um, and uh, thank you again for joining us. We appreciate your time and, and walking through this and explaining what it is that you guys are doing and, and your hopes for what we can plan for after uh you know, afterward and, and getting this information out. And uh, we appreciate what both of you are doing. And uh, we will look forward to seeing part two. And we'll yes. definitely make sure we have you guys back when there's some uh, more news to, to discuss, whether emergency preparedness changes or policy changes or any of those things. So thank you so much, guys, for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Sheila, and thank you, Marielle and Clean Energy Group. Amazing working with you, and we look forward to continued collaboration.